Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. God is our mighty fortress, always ready to help in times of trouble, and so we won't be afraid. Let the earth tremble and the mountains tumble into the deepest sea. Let the ocean roar and foam, and its raging waves shake the mountains. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, Contemporary English Version. I have learned to be satisfied with whatever I have. I know what it is to be poor or to have plenty, and I have lived under all kinds of conditions. I know what it means to be full or to be hungry, to have too much or too little. Christ gives me the strength to face anything. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 Contemporary English Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. If you've been with us on our last several episodes of Anchored by Truth, you'll know that we're in the midst of a series we're calling The Lord of Logic. Our goal in the series has been to examine objections that are often raised against God's existence and subject them to a logical analysis. In other words, We are using logic to test those objections and see if they actually make sense. Again, with us today is Doug Apple, the manager of Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee, Florida. Doug has been active in Christian broadcasting for more than 25 years. He is not only an experienced radio professional, but he is also a dedicated and well-informed student of the Bible. And as he has said on Anchored by Truth, He is all in for Jesus. Doug is also the person who suggested that Crystal Sea launch a radio program because of his deep commitment to bringing the word of truth in every possible way to a world that needs truth more than anything else. Doug has been with us for the past few episodes, and his contribution has been invaluable. Before we get into the discussion, Doug, would you like to take a couple of minutes and tell us a little about why you wanted to help us with this series? Well, you know, I just really like what Crystal Sea Books is doing here through Anchored by Truth, and honestly, I'm just honored to be a part of it. Thanks, Doug. Your contribution has been invaluable. During this series, we started off by thinking about thinking. We did this because we wanted listeners to become more discerning when they come across criticisms that are often hurled at the Christian faith. A lot of people don't realize that many of the objections against God's existence are based on premises that are actually self-defeating. For instance, one complaint you often hear is that if God were all good and all powerful, then evil wouldn't exist. But what the complainer misses is that when they make that complaint, they are acknowledging that there is a real difference between good and evil. If there wasn't, why complain? But there is a real difference between good and evil, and only because a good God established a difference. 
A universe without a God would be undirected and chaotic, and so any perceived difference between good and evil in such a universe would be illusory. Thus, the complaint is actually self-defeating. Exactly. We've seen that same pattern in all of the objections we've examined. The most common objections about God's existence are not reasonable in a formal sense. They don't pass muster when they're subjected to a logical evaluation. For instance, the idea that we can't know God exists because he can't be perceived by our five senses is built on the premise that we can derive meaningful information about the world around us through our senses. The objection would also require that we possess the ability to apply logic and reason to the information we derive to arrive at sound conclusions. But if God did not exist, we would have no rational basis for believing we possess intelligence in the first place. The evolutionary hypothesis is a very poor explanation for the existence of intelligence because the general theory of evolution speculates that all life arose from the random collision of inanimate particles. Evolution sees the collision of unintelligent, lifeless molecules as the source for intelligence and reason. So the I can't see God objection relies on a logical reasoning process to deny God exists while simultaneously making that logical reasoning process the product of chaos and confusion. In other words, the objector has to borrow capital from a highly ordered and structured universe to then claim that there's no ultimate source for the order and structure used to make their case. When you put it that way, it becomes easy to see that the objection that because I can't see God, he must not be there, winds up in an inescapable contradiction. And the same thing happens when you look at any of the objections to God's existence that we've covered so far. So let's see if the same situation is true for the objection to God's existence that might be phrased as, God is just a psychological crutch. This objection says that even though God does not exist, human beings invented the concept of God because they just couldn't handle facing a dangerous and uncertain universe on their own. So. Where do you want to start in looking at this objection? Well, there's one obvious observation that we can make about this objection that destroys its credibility immediately. And that is? The objector who says that believers invented God just to serve as a psychological crutch are immediately vulnerable to the charge that the only reason they deny the existence of God is to avoid having to deal with the consequences of the existence of a holy and righteous God. If there's no God to impose standards on human behavior, everything becomes permissible. Sin is rebellion against God. No God, no sin. It's hard to think of a more powerful psychological incentive to do away with God than the supposed freedom it grants to the non-believer. Your point is that if believers derive a significant psychological benefit from believing in God, the unbeliever derives just as much of a psychological benefit from not believing in God. But, naturally, you would never hear anyone who denies the existence of God point that out. So, in essence, the person who asserts that we only believe in God because we need a psychological crutch is vulnerable to the reverse criticism, that the only reason they don't believe in God is to allow themselves to be free of the ethical obligations God established for the creatures he created in his image. Right. The psychological benefit argument cuts both ways. 
So it starts out being, at best, a very weak argument against God's existence. Yet, when you take an even closer look, you find out that, like earlier objections, it actually rebounds against the objector. What are you thinking about? Again, let's take a look at the assumptions that are embedded in the objection. For the objection to even be stated, the objector must acknowledge that human beings possess certain attributes that are unique to them, starting with the human ability to frame, organize, and use abstract concepts. Let's start out by thinking about this. If God does not exist at all, other than in people's imaginations, then the concept of God would be a purely abstract concept. We can have concepts of, say, dogs and cats because we can see them. So it doesn't take any abstract conceptual ability to have a concept of a dog or a cat, even of a dog or cat we have not seen before. If we've seen a brown dog, we can easily conceive of a white dog. The same thing is true of certain other concepts. We can conceive of squares, rectangles, or triangles because even if we did not draw them on paper, we see geometric shapes of various types all around us. But if God did not exist, any concept of his existence would have to originate in the mind of the conceiver. As critics are quick to point out, we can't see God, so where did the idea of God originate? And where would human beings derive the ability to frame and form any abstract concept at all? Again, all this is based on the presumption that God does not exist. You're taking us back to the same place we found ourselves standing when we dealt with the first four objections. If God doesn't exist, then there is no explanation for life other than the evolutionary hypothesis. The general theory of evolution argues that all life on Earth is descended from a single, original life form, which itself was the product of the random interaction of inanimate atoms and molecules. The essential idea is that the chance collision of some pre-organic compounds in a primeval ocean filled with those compounds accidentally produced a macromolecule that could replicate itself. Of course, as we've pointed out many times on Anchored by Truth, there is zero scientific evidence that such a prebiotic ocean ever existed. In fact, the geologic evidence points to a complete absence of such compounds ever being present in the earliest dated rocks. Moreover, there is no good reason to suppose that any molecule or chain of molecules could ever sustain the kind of replication contemplated. All life on Earth, all life, is cellular and the simplest known bacterial cells contain over a hundred billion atoms. To even sustain the simplest forms of current life, elaborate chemical processes must occur continually. The essential processes necessary to sustain life today are so complicated and precise that there aren't even any accepted models for what pre-cellular replication could have looked like. And even if there were, we're still stuck with the basic dilemma that if life originated randomly, all subsequent products of that origin would themselves be randomly derived. Remember, the general theory of evolution provides no role for goal-directed behavior at all. So while it's easy for us to speculate that a primitive macromolecule might have found some idyllic place where it could replicate without restriction, there's no reason that it should. Replication would not have been preferable to non-replication because in a chaotic random world, preference does not exist. When the evolutionary hypothesis is invoked, 
There's always the tacit assumption that living creatures are driven to live. Survival of the fittest means the fittest want to survive. In other words, evolutionary theory subtly injects purpose into the animate world. If nothing else, evolutionary theory presupposes living things share the purpose of perpetuating their existence. But in the completely disorganized ocean of prebiotic soup, there is no purpose, much less the purpose of survival. Survival in such a world is not preferable to not surviving, and the same thing would be true for any subsequent products of any first random collision. This is one of the many fatal flaws of the evolutionary hypothesis. The idea of evolution presupposes the existence of purpose. But the idea of evolution simultaneously excludes any reasonable explanation for how purpose would exist in the first place. And that is a really important point. It's easy for Christians to explain why all living creatures exhibit purpose. Even the most primitive forms of life exhibit the purpose of continuing their own existence. This is easy to explain by a God who is himself a purposeful being. A purposeful God can create purposeful creatures. But there is no corresponding explanation in a universe devoid of God, where all you have is matter, energy, space, and time, just drifting about with no one and nothing to direct their activity. Christians are sometimes accused of inventing what is cynically termed the God of Gaps. In other words, every time a Christian can't explain a phenomena, but invokes God as an explanation, the Christian is accused of inserting God into the gaps. But this is exactly what happens in the evolutionary hypothesis. Whenever there is a need for an explanation for how replication could have occurred before there was existence of a cell, the evolutionists say, quote, We don't know but we know it happened because life exists today, and we know that all life was the result of evolution, unquote. So rather than God being in the gap, evolution is in the gap. Christians have a straightforward explanation for the existence of purpose in living creatures. A purposeful God imparted purpose to his creatures. But evolution has no explanation. Purposeful behavior is the exact opposite of randomness and chaos. So how would a random and chaotic process create purpose? Exactly. So this brings us back to the idea that we were discussing a couple of minutes ago. If God does exist, it's easy to explain why just about all cultures throughout history have had some concept of a divine being, or at least a supernatural being, if that culture's idea did not extend to the idea of omnipotence, omniscience, or the other attributes of the God of the Bible. God as God can communicate an awareness of himself to the creatures he created. And in fact, that's what the Bible tells us that God did. God's very first interaction recorded in the Bible was to talk to man. Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 through 29 records God as telling Adam and Eve, quote, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, unquote. So it's easy for Christianity to explain how man knows about God. God spoke to man right from the beginning. 
And it is easy, unfortunately, for Christians to explain the many variations of God that exist around the world. After the fall, man's mind and spirit became corrupted, and this corruption extended to his knowledge. Part of the consequence of the first sin was the loss of clarity of the knowledge man possessed about God. Yet despite the corruption, all men retain the original awareness that they were created by God, even if that awareness has become distorted or diluted by time and sin. Romans chapter 1 verses 20 through 22 tell us that, quote, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although men knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools." Yes. So Christianity has a clear and coherent explanation for how men and women everywhere possess a conceptual awareness of God, regardless of whether they worship or acknowledge Him. But if people are just the most recent arrivals in a long chain of randomly derived sequences of undirected macromolecules, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to figure out where or how the concept of God originated. As we've noted, there's no direct sensory apprehension of God's being. We certainly have a sensory apprehension of God's creation, but not of God's being. So we can't assign the concept of God to a physical correspondence somewhere. But of course the critic can just say, even though the first concept of God didn't arise from a physical illustration, the God hypothesis could have arisen because man wanted an explanation for things that were otherwise inexplicable. And of course, that's one contention that's tossed about, but that misses the entire point that we started with, man's ability to embrace abstract concepts in the first place. The question is not so much whether man invented God as an explanation for otherwise inexplicable natural phenomena, but why man wanted such an explanation in the first place. All living creatures respond to their environment. What we call higher-order animals even display some attributes of personality. Your dog can signal to you whether it's happy or sad. Cats can, too. They just don't think you're worth the effort. The old saying is, dogs treat you like family. Cats treat you like staff. Right. So, dogs and cats and lots of other animals display behaviors that we would say indicate personality. But neither a happy dog nor an indifferent cat looks for explanations about things it doesn't understand. So, let's circle back to the objection that we're dealing with. The idea that men invented God as a sort of psychological crutch. The cynic who makes this assertion must acknowledge that men, A, have the capacity to form and frame abstract concepts, because if God didn't exist, the idea of God would be an entirely abstract concept. And B, that not only can men form and frame abstract concepts, that such abstract concepts have relevance and importance in their lives. These two premises are nearly impossible, if not outright impossible, to explain in a creature that was the product of the randomness and purposeless product of inanimate particles. They're easy to explain in a creature created by a self-existent God who communicated to that creature attributes he already possessed. 
But I suppose a critic might speculate that a sufficiently complicated neuro and electrical network like the human brain might produce all kinds of psychological phenomena, including the concept of God. They certainly might and do. But how did man wind up with a brain that is that advanced? Critics who make the psychological crutch always espouse a particles-to-people view of evolution. In that worldview, every mutation that occurs must have some kind of benefit in terms of enhancing the likelihood of survival. But as Charles Darwin's colleague Alfred Russell Wallace famously wrote, man was overqualified for his environment, a fact at odds with the central thesis of their evolutionary hypothesis. Wallace said that man possessed a brain good enough for a philosopher, while at the same time admitting that if natural selection were true, Man only needed a brain slightly better than an ape's to meet the needs of his environment. Wallace's observation stuck a knife in the heart of the notion that blind chance could produce a man's brain. Darwin himself acknowledged this fact in a famous letter he wrote to Wallace, where Darwin said, quote, I hope you've not murdered too completely your own and my child, unquote, in talking about their hypothesis of natural selection. Moreover, the question that would become relevant would be what kind of evolutionary benefit would arise from a belief in God? Belief in God, some kind of God at any rate, is so widespread, it very much looks like a shared characteristic of all people. But what competitive benefit would be conferred by believing that there is a God who can provide help and comfort? Moreover, even if natural selection selected for people who believe in God, how would natural selection explain the origination of the belief? So the notion that the concept of God is purely a psychological construct invented for the purpose of making man feel better runs into the same kind of roadblocks all objections to God hit. First, it is subject to the countercharge that the only reason the critic rejects the knowledge of God is because the critic wants to be free of the moral and ethical restraints God puts on human beings. Second, in making the assertion that the critic is acknowledging man possesses attributes that are impossible to explain if God doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, then man is just the latest product in a long string of undirected, haphazard, and disorganized activity that occurs among combinations of hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and some other elements. Supposedly no intelligence selected the elements involved, how they combined, or how complex structures formed from the combination would relate to one another. Yet this slapdash string of chemical comedy produced a creature that exhibits intention, purpose, curiosity, and a universal awareness of a divine being. Third, the biological product of undirected chemistry and physics not only forms and frames esoteric abstract concepts, but then proceeds to construct elaborate communities, societies, and countries ungirded by nothing more than those shared abstract concepts. Does that pretty much sum it up? Pretty much. The objection that God's existence is just a psychological crutch to believers is like all objections to God. The objections have to presume that men and women seek to live lives of meaning and significance while declaring that such meaning and significance are purely biologically created illusions. Yet if that were true, offering the objection would also simply be another of those biologically created illusions. 
Matter and energy may be the stuff with which the visible universe is composed, but no combination of matter and energy can impart meaning to any combination regardless of how exotic or elaborate the combination may be. Suns, stars, and nebula may be breathtaking manifestations of chemistry and physics, but they're only breathtaking to a creature that knows what the word breathtaking means. Matter and energy possess no breath, no matter how they're combined. Breath is a sign of life, and our experience in this world is that no one has ever created life from non-living materials. No one. And if a supposedly intelligent human being can't create life from non-living matter and energy, how could undirected matter and energy produce life without design or direction? The goddess crutch critic acknowledges that human beings are beings who possess the attributes of personality, such as emotion. They feel hope and despair. Volition. They can choose to believe or not believe. Conceptual capacity. They can form a concept of being which they have never comprehended with their senses. And reason. They can understand cause and effect in a being that can influence their lives. Yet these critics dismiss the being who imparted those attributes to them. Furthermore, anyone who believes that the concept of God exists only as a psychological crutch must also set aside the existence of any objective, compulsory ethic. An imaginary God would not have an ability to impose moral or ethical standards on anyone. Yet is the existence of an awareness of moral and ethical standards and an awareness of failure to meet them that creates the need for comfort from God, for instance, to assuage guilt. Yes. So as with the first four objections, we find that this objection doesn't withstand rigorous logical scrutiny. The basis for the objection wouldn't even exist if God didn't exist. God must exist for the objection to have any meaning at all. As such, like all the other objections, the objection is self-defeating. Furthermore, the objection again points to the exquisite distinctions between man and all other forms of God's creatures. Man possesses attributes that could only be present if man was created in the image of God and had been communicated those attributes by God. So, let's finish by pointing out that we know that this series, The Lord of Logic, is challenging. Many of the concepts we've covered have required focus and concentration to absorb. But this is work we need to be willing to perform. Well, today's episode of Anchored by Truth marks the final episode of this series where Doug will be joining us. But we hope that he will be free to come back for other series in the future. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And, you know, a lot of this topic is kind of mind-bending. It's almost hard to grasp, especially just hearing it on the radio. But it requires further study and depth. And I would highly recommend that people subscribe to this podcast. The podcast always includes the notes where you could actually read and ponder and think and pray about these things to really come to a deeper understanding. And thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thank you, Doug. We are very grateful for the time you've spent working on this series. We really think you have been a great inspiration to so many in the body of Christ. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters who live in lands that are hostile to the gospel and to their faith. And let's remember always to pray regularly for them because the Bible assures that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of His faithful children. A Prayer for Persecuted Christians 
Father of comfort and deliverance, you are a merciful God and you have abundant compassion for those who suffer and are afflicted. Lord, we come to you to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and killed because they belong to you. We grieve for them and we cry out to you on their behalf. We know that you never leave or forsake any of your children and that you know their sorrows better than we will ever know them. Yet we cannot remain silent, and so we plead with you to grant healing and release for them all. Help us to know what we can do to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves, and give us wisdom to know how we can help them. Help us to be generous with financial support, persistent in prayer, and committed to their cause. Cause our national leaders to act to improve their lot in accordance with your will. Raise up leaders who are willing to stand for you without compromise or flinching. We pray that you would cause the release and delivery of those whom you would have delivered. For those who remain in suffering, be a powerful presence in their lives. Grant them the peace that can only come from your special touch. We long for the day when all your people will stand united at your feet and where the tribulations of this world will be far behind. We and all your people pray, now and always, only in his holy name. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous. But our boss is.